All right. Well, this is a Sunday and a season that I have been anticipating uh, for quite some time, uh, actually years, uh, actually, uh, anticipating this, because today I have the honor of starting a teaching series uh, working through the Gospel of John. And I am uh, I'm telling you uh, what an incredible journey we have uh, ahead of us. Uh, I truly believe that uh, over this next bit of time uh, together, you and I are going to be blown away, uh, just absolutely blown away by this book. But more than that, we are going to be amazed uh, at the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, the things that he said, uh, the way that he, he lived, uh, we're going to be so encouraged and so challenged by John and by Jesus. And, and as, we, as we read this book, uh, we're going to find it to be, on the one hand, uh, very, very simple. John is a simple gospel. And on the other hand, uh, we're going to find this, this gospel, this book, to be very, very deep um, because it's also very complex. Uh, St. Augustine uh, said this about John's gospel. He said, John's gospel is shallow enough for a child not to drown in, yet deep enough for an elephant to swim in. This gospel has been described as a masterful painting one that you can understand at first glance, but one that also needs to be stared at, absorbed. Uh, again, it's an amazing book. And as I've been uh, working through it and, and, and studying it, one thought, or rather uh, one prayer, has kept coming into my mind and my heart. And that is that through this gospel, that you and I would have a more elevated view of the person of Jesus Christ. And in that, week after week, my hope, my prayer, every single week that we're in John, is that we would leave here simply loving Jesus more. Uh, that's my simple prayer, my hope, and my objective in this sermon series, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you will come to love Jesus more than you do today. And if you're not a Christian and you're here with us today, um, and by the way, we are so glad that you are here. You're welcome here. Um, I pray that you would come to believe in this Jesus and come to love this Jesus uh, as well. And so if you don't mind, I know we've already prayed, but I'd love to, to pray for this entire uh, teaching series. So let's do that now. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all the blessings that are found in you. We, again, thank you for your word. We thank you for John's gospel, for the life that it, it points us to, shows us. And I just pray that as we enter into this season of studying John's gospel together, that we would grow more deeply in love with Jesus. That we would believe in you, Jesus. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, that we would believe in you once again. So be with us. Um, over this season together. Have us to have hearts that are open to receive, ears ready to hear. Give us minds that can fully comprehend, understand what you're trying to show us and teach us, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let me invite you to turn to John with me uh, now, if you're not already there. 
And today I want to do a bit of an overview of this book, and then we're just going to simply look at the first two verses together. And really, my, my purpose for today is to, uh, to draw out one big idea from John in general. But, but we're also going to see that that idea, that big idea, is also found in John 1, 1 through 2 in particular. Okay? And the idea, the big idea is simply this, simple but profound, that Jesus is the fully divine Son of God. Simple truth that we start with in this gospel. Jesus is the fully divine Son of God. We are going to today gaze upon the beauty of Christ's person. We're not going to focus on Jesus' work. We'll get there okay, later in John. Today we're going to focus on his person, who he is. And that's actually John's objective. Uh, he wants to lead us to Jesus. John's hope for us as we read his words is that we would see Jesus, that we would know Jesus. And why? Why is that? Well, he actually tells us at the end of his book. It's interesting. John gives us the purpose for his book at the end, not the beginning. This is John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. This is actually John's thesis statement. It's his purpose for writing this gospel. He says this, John 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. You can look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke for, for those. But these... The words that he's writing here, but these are written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John's agenda is very clear. I wrote what I wrote here, he says, so that you may believe, so that you would trust that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Everything here in this gospel is for that purpose. It's for that goal, to help us see Jesus and to believe in him. And so the question for you and I then, as we go through John, is, is who then is Jesus? Who is he? Because, of course, we all know there are a lot of opinions about him, right? A lot of opinions in our world about Jesus, some have studied Jesus and his life and said that he was a witty teacher, like Buddha or Socrates. Others, uh, scholars you can read, they'll say about Jesus, oh, he was a good man, uh, a wise philosopher who died a very unfortunate and, and tragic death. I, I've read others who say that uh, Jesus was this great charismatic leader. Others say about him that he was this apocalyptic prophet. Some modern-day scholars more recently say, or they call Jesus the first feminist. Okay, that's who he was. That's what he came to do. He's the first feminist. Others uh, have called him the first socialist. Jesus is everywhere in our culture. Okay? He appears in cartoon shows. Okay? You've seen some of them, like The Simpsons. Okay? Um, he makes appearances, not the real Jesus, but he's in body or depicted in, in movies, right? Athletes and actors from all different sports around the world thank him, right, when they win awards, when they win trophies, right? Everybody seems to have a Jesus. But who is Jesus really? Because listen, 
how you answer, how you and I answer that question really determines everything about you. That question for yourself, who is Jesus to me, is, is more important than who you marry. It's, it's much more significant than where you're going to live. It has extremely much more significance than what you should do for a living. It's the most important question about you. Who is Jesus? And, and hear me as well. We must decide who he is. Actually, we don't have a choice, none of us, um, based on what Jesus actually said about himself. C.S. Lewis once said this. He says, you and I, you and I actually make a choice when it comes to Jesus and what he said. Whether you know this or not, you've made a decision about who is Jesus. He said this, listen, either this man, Jesus, was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. We have a choice. And by the way, this is actually where John's gospel is moving, to, to eventually uh, us seeing one of his followers or, or getting a glimpse at the scene of one of his followers, his name is Thomas, declaring to Jesus, my Lord and my God. That's where we're headed. And John hopes, his hope once again, is that we would all find ourselves in that place as well. That as we look at Jesus, as we read about Jesus, study Jesus, think about Jesus, that we too would declare week after week, my Lord, my God. So that's John's purpose. That for, again, the very first time, or for the hundredth time, or for the thousandth time, that we would believe in Jesus. That we would keep on believing in him. That Jesus Christ would be the object of our faith. And then in that, we would find life, he says. Eternal life. Life in his name. Now, a little bit about the author. A little bit about the author. Who is this John guy, okay, that we're going on about here? Who's this John guy we're talking about? Well, uh, John refers to himself in this gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Right? It's really interesting. Um, he doesn't call himself by his name, um, but as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So, for example, for example, uh, at the very end of his book, in John 21.20, it says this, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And then first, uh, four verses later, it says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and what? Who, is, who has written these things. So the disciple whom Jesus loved is the one who bore witness of what Jesus did and who wrote down these things that you're reading about what Jesus did. So that's what we're looking at here. This person who wrote this gospel is the man who was there at the feeding of the 5,000. He was there when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Uh, this is the man, John, who was leaning on Jesus' shoulder at the Last Supper. He, he was uh, in the garden at Jesus' arrest. 
He was standing, the only disciple, standing at the foot of the cross, watching Jesus Christ hang there and die. He was there. He was uh, the first apostle to see the empty tomb. Actually, it says that the women uh, who were there and, and saw the empty tomb went back and told the 12, and then two guys get up and run, Peter and John, and John is faster. <laughs> and so, and John actually tells us that. <laughs> we were both running and I beat him there, right? It's like, why? <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, he's the first person to see the empty tomb, right? This is John. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And understand, uh, understand. I think this is important, John isn't calling himself the one who loved Jesus or the disciple whom Jesus loved um, in an arrogant sense. I remember when I first read that a long, a long time ago, many years ago, I was like, man, who is that young guy? Because right? John's the youngest apostle. Like, how arrogant, right? The one whom Jesus loved? Like all the others, I don't know, but... I'm the one whom Jesus loved, right? But it's not that, actually. Um, as I've studied this more and gone through this book, the sense that I've gotten, the opinion that I now have, backed up by, you know, scholarly research, is that John is more so saying with this, I'm, every time he says the disciple who Jesus loved, what he's saying is, I'm overwhelmed that he would love me. It's a reminder almost to himself. That's the feeling here. I'm, I'm, a, I'm someone who Jesus loves. I, I, I can't even wrap my mind around that. Okay. This is John. More on, on John. We, we, we know that he was a close friend of Peter, very close companion. Uh, John has a brother. We don't know if he has others, but he has at least one brother named James. Uh, together, they are referred to in the Bible, the New Testament, as the sons of thunder, uh, they are strong and, and passionate, uh, devoted uh, guys. We know that John was a fisherman who later became a pastor. Um, and he wrote five books of the New Testament. He wrote this gospel, the Gospel of John. He's very creative in his titles. He wrote John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. Okay, And he is writing here now, the Gospel of John, likely as an old man. Okay? It's the last Gospel we believe that was written. Now, as we work through this Gospel, um, we're going to see it, it differs quite a bit than the other Gospels. One of the reasons is because we're going to see John's focus um, is much more on Jesus' ministry in southern Israel as opposed to northern Israel. Okay? He focuses more on Jesus' work, words, and ministry in Judea, okay? whereas Matthew, Mark, Luke are more focused in the north of Israel in, in Galilee. Okay? So that's one difference. In terms of structure, as we work through John, we're going to see this book. It's, again, it's a masterpiece. It's like an art piece. Right? It's so deep. You can read it first, and it's simple, just words like light and life. And you're like, oh, a kid can understand this. And at the same time, you read it and you're like, this guy is brilliant. Um, we'll, we'll see that. I want to say so much more on that, but I can't right now. But in terms of structure, the book is really centered around seven miracles. Okay? So the structure of the book is built around these seven miracles. And then within that structure, we're going to find this key phrase again and again. It, it actually comes up 23 different times. It's this phrase, I am. Okay? 
Jesus will say things like, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. And then we're going to see a culmination of that. I believe it's John 8 when John says, before Abraham was, I am. Okay. And then the last thing I'll share with you in terms of an overview of this gospel, and again, there's so much that I could have shared. Um, this could have been two sermons, to be honest. Okay. I almost did two sermons on the first two verses of John. But then I thought, yeah, you, half of you would never come back. <laughs> but there's so much here. But, but the last thing that I'll share before we jump into John 1 is just this, this very basic, simple little outline of the book so that you see how it's laid out. And I think it'll help us as we read through and, and work through John together. Okay, so if you're taking notes, this isn't going to be on the screen. I, I could have been kind to put a graphic up, but I didn't. Um, but if you want to see how John works, essentially what you, what you see in John is we, we start with this prologue. And then at the end of the book, there's an epilogue. Okay? They, they bookend the book. It's a prologue and an epilogue. The first 18 verses of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, we have the prologue. This is the introduction of John. And then in chapter 21, we have the epilogue of, of John's gospel. And then in between that, you have two major sections. Okay? John structures it very nicely, very clean for us, which is why I chose John, because okay? I appreciate this. Right? But you have, first, you have J Jesus' public ministry, okay? which goes from chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through chapter 12. Okay? And it's there, within that section, that we're going to see those seven miracles that I told you about. You're going to see in those 11-ish uh, chapters, three years of Jesus' teaching in public, his public ministry. Okay? And then, following that, in chapters 13 and 17, you have what people call Jesus' private ministry, or better known as the farewell discourse. Okay? The farewell discourse. And in this section, John 13 to 17, you actually have what's... Uh, described as like just a few days. It might even just be a week where Jesus privately teaches his disciples. Okay? So you have the public ministry walking through three years in 11 chapters. Okay? And then you have the private ministry, which only happens over the course of a few days, and that's like five chapters. Okay? And then finally, John walks us through, he closes the gospel walking through his passion, okay? The arrest, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that just happened over a weekend. So three years, maybe a week, a weekend, okay? In between an epilogue, a prologue and an epilogue, okay? So that's the layout of this gospel. Prologue, Jesus' public ministry, private ministry, passion, epilogue. And every single section of it is written. It's all here, again, that we may believe in Jesus and find life in his name. This is the purpose of John's gospel. So with that all being said, now for the remaining of the time we have together, I want to begin looking at the prologue of John. John's introduction. It's just 18 verses. 18 verses. But it's so deep, so profound, 
that we're going to actually stay in this introduction for three weeks, okay? And then I promise things will move a bit quicker from there. But about John's prologue, uh, pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul, some of you have heard his name before. If you haven't, worth your time. Uh, Pick up something that he's written. Listen to one of his sermons. Very influential. He actually wrote a commentary of John's gospel. Okay, went through it verse by verse, just you know, explaining what it means, what is being said. He says this about the prologue. He says, No portion of the New Testament captured the imagination and attention of the Christian intellectual community for the first three centuries more than this section of John's gospel. It's basically, some people see this as the most important verses in all of the Bible. Okay? John 1, 1 through 18. And why? Because John's prologue is all about the identity, the person of Jesus Christ. And in that, what we're going to see is John is doing something masterful. Because what we're going to see John do is introduce all these themes, which he will then tease out throughout the rest of his gospel. Okay? So this introduction is so worth our time, and it is key to unlocking the rest of John's gospel. Okay, so let's jump into this together. And again, we're going to be in the first two verses of John 1 today. And my hope in these verses is to show you John's three proofs for Jesus's deity. Okay? That's where we're headed today. It's going to serve as our outline for today. Three proofs for the deity of Jesus Christ. And I hope in all of this we can just marvel at Jesus. So the first proof. First proof I want us to dwell on today that John reveals to us is this, um, his incomprehensible characteristic, or an incomprehensible characteristic, if you want to say it that way. John gives us a trait about Jesus that just absolutely boggles the mind, and that is Jesus's eternality. Jesus's pre-existence. John begins his gospel this way. I love it. In the beginning was. Some of the most important words in the entire Bible are found in verses 1 through 2, starting right here. In the beginning was. Meaning, Jesus was in eternity past with God the Father. Okay, that's what John's getting at here. Now, We know that this phrase, in the beginning, brings us back to, it should bring you back to the very first words of the Bible in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1-1, where it says, uh, in the beginning, right? It starts that way as well. And so, as we open up John's gospel and we see John 1-1, it says, in the beginning was. And for those of you who know the Bible, if you've read the Bible, you know Genesis 1-1, you anticipate the next word. In the beginning was God, if you've read Genesis 1. But John doesn't say that. John says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, at this point in John's Gospel, we don't know who this Word is, or what is this Word. But just a few verses later, John, I'm so thankful, he actually tells us, He says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Then in verse 15, it says this, John the Baptist was a witness to this word, and then we see his name in verse 17, Jesus Christ. So John could have just simply said, in the beginning was Jesus. It would be writing the same thing. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word who is Jesus. And that is very, very significant. You see, the word beginning here is the word arche in Greek. Uh, It's a word that means origin, meaning, get this, that Jesus, John is saying with just these words here, he's saying that Jesus was the originator of all things, that Jesus is the agent of creation. And verse 3 here in John 1 actually confirms that. We'll look at this much more deeply next week when he says, all things were made through him, through Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, the Apostle Paul repeats in Colossians 1, verse 15, when he says, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And then he says, get this, all things were made through him and for him, and he holds all things together. So, in the beginning, the word Jesus was already in existence. Um, It actually more so reads, it's funny, in the beginning, the word was, wasing. It actually reads that way. So Jesus was, wasing. Okay, up there, (laughs) wherever that is, okay? Was, wasing. All things were made by him. Okay, and so we have to see how significant that word was, is here. Jesus was always in existence before anything, He was, he is the beginning and the end. To quote another early church father, there has never been a time in which Jesus was not. But why then does John call Jesus the word? Why why does he just say in the beginning was Jesus? Why say the word? Well, I think there's actually a Hebrew reason for that. And there's also a Greek reason for that. And I'm going to explain both. See, the Jews, the Jewish people, the Israelites, we know that they had an extremely high view of God's word. Meaning, yes, his written word, Old Testament, but I'm talking about like his spoken word. An extremely high view of his word. We know in Genesis 1, God speaks, right, with his word, and it did stuff, <laughs> okay? God created the world, all that you see, the universe. We talked about this in our Behold series, like that, that this universe that God can hold in the span of his hand, he created all that with his word. He spoke and things came into being. We also know that in the Old Testament narrative that God actually revealed himself by his word. Again, not just written, but spoken, right? He speaks to Moses. Yes, depicted in a visual, like a a burning bush, a real burning bush in front of him, but he speaks, Moses. Moses actually hears his voice, okay? And so here now, what we see happen is that God reveals who he is in Jesus, which is why John then calls him the word. So for a Hebrew person, we can't get this, unless there's somebody here who is Jewish, okay? Uh, for a long time, and you've studied, you, you know, you've gone to school for this. 
we could never see the impact of what this, what this means and says unless we study it deeply. But to a Jewish person reading these words here, you need to understand that this, this here, this short phrase was actually reframing and redefining what God means. Like their Holy One, Yahweh. John is giving us a new definition of God. This is huge. God the Father and Jesus, he says, were at the beginning, creating. And by the way, the Holy Spirit was there too, but we'll see that later, not today. Okay. And for the Greeks, the Greeks, we know the word, word, is this word logos or logos. Okay, okay. And I had so much written here, and then I'm like, man, we're going to lose them. Uh, I know that. So if you like philosophy, Greek philosophy, like have a conversation. Let's get some coffee. There's so much here. Okay, but for the rest of us, okay, I don't want to get in too deep into this because I don't want to cause confusion. But in Greek philosophy, try to wrap your minds around this a little bit. <laughs> there was this idea before Jesus was born and came into the world, there was this idea going around that the Logos was behind the universe. There is this ordering principle, if you will, that the, the word, this idea, this concept, this Logos, brought rationality and meaning to the universe because words have meaning. Or you might say that the, that the Logos was holding the universe together, the word. Words were holding it together. So now here, John is, he's, he knows this concept, right? But he's also Jewish, right? So he's writing to both. He knows this and he fills that, that Greek philosophy with actual meaning, fresh meaning. He's saying, oh yeah, the Logos was behind the universe. It's God. He was behind the cosmos. And listen, he wasn't just, he just isn't a concept. He's not a philosophy. He's a person. The word is the person of Jesus Christ. He's behind the universe. He, the Logos, Jesus, is holding all things together. In the beginning was Jesus, John says. Jesus is the eternal one. He is the transcendent, immortal God who stepped into our earth and took on flesh. He's lived the life we couldn't live. He's died the death that you and I should have died. God has taken responsibility for our salvation. All you need to do is receive it. All you need to do is admit you need it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There has never been a greater act of self-giving love than this. This is the gospel, that we don't have to reach up to this philosophy or this concept or this being that isn't known. Actually, we can't reach up to God, but rather God, the gospel tells us, that God, the eternal one, has come down to us, the word. And that leads us to number two, which is this, uh, a unique relationship. John gives us another proof that Jesus is God. 
by describing for us or showing this, this unique relationship. And John explains this with another W word, in English at least, which is the word with. Look at it with me. In the beginning was the word, again speaking to his eternality, and then it says, and the word was, here it is, with God. Amazing. Amazing. This means that Jesus was and is in a perfect, harmonious relationship with God the Father. That, that he has a one-of-a-kind relationship with God the Father. John 1.14 says, Jesus is the only son from the Father. Or in John 20, verse 17, we're going to see this much, much later. It's a very striking passage. After Jesus rises from the dead, he says these words. He says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. And there is a, a very significant and important dis distinction there in those words. You see, like the disciples, we have a relationship. You and I who, who believe in Jesus, we have a relationship with God the Father. But it's different with Jesus. Because he is unique. He was with God in the beginning. From the beginning. They've always been and been together. Again, in this beautiful Trinitarian relationship that includes the Holy Spirit, who we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. And Jesus conveys this to us very clearly, actually in John's gospel, in John 17, when he prays this, he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, listen now, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I understand this is extremely hard to wrap our minds around. Okay? Imagine my, being my shoes. i got to try to understand it and then simplify it so that you can maybe try to understand. This is tough, but we have to try. Right? Before the world existed, Jesus was with the Father. But get this. Between them, there was this decision. I don't know what that looked like. I'd love to peer into it. There's a decision made that Jesus would empty himself by choice and come to this earth, even though he was with God the Father from the very beginning of all things. And so what we're going to see throughout, God's, uh, throughout John's gospel here is Jesus, in this unique, special way, communing with the Father, accomplishing the work of the Father, speaking on behalf of the Father, always in, in step, in harmony with God the Father. Again, it's this unique, beautiful relationship. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. He was there, always, always was. And he was with God the Father, together in this unique relationship with one another. And then finally, we, we see evidence of Jesus' deity in the beginning of John. Because of Jesus' what? Extraordinary essence. 
It's the third proof we have of Jesus' deity, and this really ties it all together. His extraordinary essence. As we look at our text this morning, you might notice how John repeats a couple of phrases for us. And it sounds a bit redundant as you read it. We see in the beginning, written twice, with God written twice, and the word was, the word was, was, W-A-S, written four times, just in these two verses. But this is a habit of John that we're going to see all throughout his gospel, trying to emphasize or make a point. But in the midst of that, in these two verses, because there's a lot of repeating going on, if you're not paying attention, you can actually miss one of, if not the central point of the entire text and the entire prologue about the deity of Jesus. Because John says at the end of verse 1, look at this, he says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and what? And the Word was God. The Word was God. In other words, Jesus shares the essence of God the Father, even though they differ in person. So get this. There has never been a moment in which the word, Jesus, wasn't or didn't obtain the very essence of God. The word, John says, is full deity. He is not just a God, okay, like the Jehovah's Witnesses try to do or mess with these verses. And they, have, they need to study Greek again. Okay, very poor. They say the word was a God. They put a clause there. Poor Greek, okay, to tell them that. They're going to take you to John 1 and say, no, 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 he's not, the word wasn't God, the word was a God. A lot of flaws in that. I had another page written about that, and I cut that out. So if you're interested in Jehovah's Witnesses, come talk to me. Okay, philosophers, Jehovah's Witnesses, come talk to me. There's a lot here. Okay. The word is full of deity. He was not just a God or God-like or nearly God. The word, Jesus Christ, was not just a really great human being. Okay, you cannot read this and say that. That's what Lewis, C.S. Lewis, was getting at. The word was, Jesus is God. Now, we're going to see a few, in a few weeks in verse 14 that this, again, we've already said it, but the word becomes flesh. That he's not only fully divine, but he's also fully human. And if you want a fancy term for that, uh, we call that the hypostatic union, okay, if you're really interested. It's the teaching, the truth, that Jesus has two natures in one person, okay? Two natures, one person, hypostatic union. Fully God, fully man. And the, the rest of the New Testament affirms this, by the way. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 says, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus was fully God. And in John 5, 18, we see this. It says this, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Listen now. Making himself equal with God. And to be clear, to be very clear, 
Jesus doesn't make up the entire Godhead himself. Okay? But the divinity that belongs to the rest of the Godhead, Father and Holy Spirit, also belongs to him. Jesus shares God's essence because he is God. That's the bottom line. And understand, if John wanted to say that Jesus was lacking or that Jesus was like God or less of a God or a God of sorts, of sorts he could have said so. In fact, we know there are multiple Greek words he could have used to say that. Okay? But he doesn't. John chooses the word theos here. God. One. The God. The Holy One. Theos. The word was theos. And this brings us to an important aspect of the Trinity. Okay, I know. Listen, I know. I'm with you. I, I realize there's a lot to wrap our minds around here, but try to stick with me. Okay? Try to stick with me. John reveals to us that while God is one in essence, there are three persons. One essence, three persons. We sang about it today. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Spirit. Three in one. You sang it, okay? This is what John is talking about. Meaning this, this is important. Theology matters, okay? What we believe matters. Meaning, you and I, followers of Jesus, evangelicals, we are not tritheists. Okay, what does that mean? It means we don't believe in three gods. Okay, we are monotheists. There is one God. But also, we are not modalists. Okay, and this is where most of us fall into the trap. Modalists. It's the teaching that there is one God, and I'll try to explain it really simply, one God who just puts on different masks depending on the occasion or the need. Okay? Like one day, God is the Father. He puts on that suit. And then the next day, he puts on the Jesus clothes. And then the next day, he puts on the spirit mask. Okay? Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. The Father did not die on the cross, like some people pray sometimes, mistakenly. God is one in essence and three in persons. This is the glorious mystery of the triune God, the Trinity. Okay? And I'm sure the Trinity is all clear to you now. Right? You have it all sorted. You're, you're very welcome. <laughs> okay. But in all seriousness, my hope for you is that you would find peace in the reality that we can't fully comprehend the inner workings of God. We can't. I've spent not a long time, relatively, but the last, what's it been now? 16 years studying the Bible, um, specifically studying theology, taught systematic theology for seven and a half years at a university level even. And the, the longer I taught and the more I study, the less I know. <laughs> okay? 
I feel that way a lot. It is tough to define God, okay? Tough. But I don't think we're meant to fully. We're, we're meant to be in awe of him, amazed by him. But what we can know and what John wants us to know right from the very start of his gospel is clear. Jesus is fully divine. That's the takeaway today. This is what we, we sing together every Christmas, right? We, we say, sing this, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. And what's the next? Hail the incarnate deity. This is Jesus. The good news for all of us today is that this God, this fully divine Jesus has come down to us. The word became flesh. We're going to see that. And that's the purpose of all of this deep theology that John starts his gospel with. That we would know this Jesus, believe in him, and love him. Right? Not that we would see theology as an end to itself. Right? I tell my theology students, I will always say, theology doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. But theology is essential for understanding the truth including the truth about Jesus, the one who can save you. And that's why we look at these doctrines. That's why we have to dive deeply into John 1. We dig into these truths because as we dig, we're uncovering the person of Jesus Christ. Now, just finish with this. John intends this entire book to be read in light of verse 1, which is why we spent all the time there. He wants you to read John, the whole gospel, remembering John 1, 1, and 2. And we're meant to do that. All the words that are going to come, all the deeds, knowing that these words, these deeds, are from God and are God. <laughs> The whole gospel needs to be read with this in view. All right, so I just want to think about that with you really briefly. I'm going to show you a couple examples. If you go over to chapter 2, don't do that. Go over to chapter 2, and we find a miracle there. It's the first one Jesus performs. Jesus turns water into wine, right? Or as the Baptists say, he turned wine into water. Okay? Okay? <laughs> Sorry. It's water into wine. Okay? It's a miracle. And people ask, do you guys really believe in that stuff, like the miracles? You really believe that Jesus does miracles, like the supernatural happens? Well, if you believe John 1.1, 1, 1, you can believe in miracles. <laughs> if the word was God, then yes. And what about John 3? Turn the next chapter. Jesus goes to this religious guy at night, Nicodemus. Seems to be a really good guy, actually. Very upstanding, polite, moral. But Jesus tells him, you need to be born again. He actually says to him, you are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. You are not going to be with me. And people say to that, well, gosh, that seems harsh. right? That doesn't seem fair. What, what right does Jesus have to tell this guy that he's wrong, A, but also that he won't be in heaven? 
Nicodemus seems like he was decent, right? He's trying his best, right? He's, he's working to achieve. He's trying to do the right thing. But if you believe John 1.1, Jesus has every right to say that to Nicodemus, right? And we could go on and on and on from there. What about the cross, which we'll get to much, much later, but what about the cross in light of John 1.1? Jesus is hanging there. He says the words, it is finished, and he dies. How on earth does the death of a Jewish man 2,000 years ago have any significance for you and I today? Well, because it wasn't just a Jew hanging on a cross. Are you with me today? There is infinite value in the cross because there's infinite value in the person who was on that cross on Calvary that day. So as we start moving and journeying through John together, let's keep verse 1 in our minds, but also deeply rooted in our hearts. Let's remember the simple truth, simple but profound truth today, it's the bottom line today, that Jesus is the fully divine Son of God. May all of us see this Jesus for who he is, and may we believe in him, finding life, true life in his name. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Amen? Let me pray for you.